when you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you really have to think about the equity part, not just diversity and inclusion. And that means you're not just giving someone a seat at the table, but you are allowing them to contribute in some meaningful way. Welcome to Future View. Now, that's just a short clip from my conversation with Kristen Luck. Kristen has had and continues to have a truly inspiring career in the world of research, data, and insights. She successfully started and exited three companies in the space. She's the founder of the fantastic womeninresearch.org and now runs Scalehouse, advising some of the most innovative and fastest growing companies in marketing services. I talked to her about her journey, and she's full of great advice on how to keep fresh across multiple businesses, factors that are likely to enhance valuation, what really differentiates a research company as a consultancy, tips on how to approach enterprise sales, and so much more. But just for a moment before we get going, I'd like to introduce our sponsor for this episode, Horizon. Horizon is a pioneering SaaS company in consumer insights. They're taking a new approach to consumer research to help support strategic product and pricing decisions. They do this by moving beyond the written concepts and the often basic stimulus that used to be used in this type of research and introducing a new approach called pretotyping. The really cool thing about pretotyping is that it gives consumers the chance to interact with new products and pricing options and concepts in real environments. From a client perspective, they're then able to make consumer-centric decisions based on real behavioral data, in addition to traditional metrics like stated intent. Leading global companies such as Bosch Siemens and beauty brands like Essence are already using Horizon to make better product decisions. Check them out on gethorizon.net. And now onto the interview with Kristen. So Kristen, firstly, thanks for joining today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Not at all, not at all. Now we've got lots to talk about, but first off, if it's okay, I wanted to start with a bit of an icebreaker, but what's something about you that most people wouldn't know? I travel, I think, roughly 100,000 miles a year on an average year. Uh, And uh, when I first started traveling in business, I had a horrible, horrible fear of flying that took me like years to overcome. (laughs) Wow, that was brave. (laughs) Most people would not would not know that. (laughs) (laughs) So, so how how did you do it? If you if you don't mind me asking, what are the tips? Yeah, uh, well, uh, I had a a particularly turbulent flight, um, uh, just a small commuter flight. I can't remember what the city was that I originated from, but I was flying into Savannah, Georgia, and it was really turbulent, and I'm sure I looked terrified. And the guy sitting next to me, as it turns out, happened to be a pilot. And he, he said, you know, the thing, the thing to remember is that turbulence in an airplane is just like a car going over a bumpy road. So if you think about it that way, it's just, you know, it's just a bumpy road. You're not going to, you know, the plane's not going to crash because of it. Planes are incredibly resilient. Uh, and so, so that helped a lot. And the other thing that, that helps me is to find somebody that more afraid than I am and to speak to them. <laughs> In soothing tones. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you reassure somebody else. I get it. You, you sort of displace your, your your kind of fear. Gotcha. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Fake yeah. it till you make it. Isn't that a saying? Yeah. yeah, that that is a saying indeed. I, I, I like it. I shall remind myself that in turbulence as well, rather than sort of just clinging on and closing my eyes and starting to, you know, say say rosaries or whatever. <laughs> I right. Will. I think I think you were all you know, and I tell people this a lot. I think when you look at LinkedIn or anybody's bio, it looks like they've really got their life together and they've had like nothing but success, but they don't feel like the quirks and the problems and the issues that maybe you've overcome because because of that. So, uh, so yeah, if you're flying, it's just, just one of them. 
Well, hopefully we can get onto some of the other ones as well, you know, yeah. kind of a, almost the mistakes, you know, you're kind of quite glad you've made and what you've learned on the way. But before yeah. diving in, into that and your background, which really is a unique background, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about your role with, with WIRE. So that's Women in, in, in Research, W-I-R-E. Um, it's a great organization. You're the founder. So a few questions in one, if you don't mind. What, why did you find it in the first place? And what, what were the challenges you were looking to overcome and what's been achieved so far? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, and I don't know if you know this, Henry, but I would not have started Wire had it not been for MarketCast. Really? So what's that about? Okay. Yeah. So um, Elaine Coleman, I don't know if you remember Elaine, when she joined MarketCast many years ago, had moved down to LA from San Francisco. And Henry Shapiro uh, suggested she reach out to me. And so Elaine and I were talking. And one of the things that she said was that she didn't know any women in the research industry in Los Angeles that because she was in a executive position that she worked almost exclusively with men, uh, as was the case at, at that time, uh, and uh, that she wanted to, to know if I knew of any women that she could connect with. And I thought, well, I know tons of women in research in Los Angeles. And so I basically just sent an email out to every woman that I knew in the area, and we all got together for cocktails. I think there were about 60 of us at the first meetup, wow, and we had such a good time that we decided to do it every month. Uh, and then uh, one of the women that was attending, uh, Cassandra Rowe, uh, who's at Pinterest now, she ended up moving to New York and wanted to run these events in New York. And so we went to New York, and then Cassandra moved to London. And wanted to run them in London. So we then went to London. <laughs> and then she went to San Francisco. And then so we started in San Francisco. And then uh, at that point, we were just running events quarterly. And I was going to every single one of them. Uh, and that's around the time when I realized that if I wanted to really grow it as an organization, I had to let, let go of attending every single event and controlling every aspect of it. You know, one of my favorite sayings is, you've got to let go to grow. And that's... Regardless, yeah, yeah, regardless of whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit business, I think I think it's the that same ethos has to apply. And so around that time I formalized the business structure. I, you know, I got my 501c3, my official nonprofit filing. Uh I hired a team. Um, and we really expanded out our programming and and services. And so we went from just doing in-person events to also running a, a one-to-one mentoring scheme, uh, a, uh, um, a webinar series. Uh, we've launched an Accelerate program, which is like a business skills um, online self-paced training course that we launched just in the last two years. Uh, we run Wire Exec, which is a forum just for uh, senior executives and C-suite women to be able to, to network. So uh, Founders Forum, so for women that have founded mm-hmm. their own companies. So we've just got lots of Lots of different initiatives. And I will say that most of those have not been thought up by me. They've been thought up by other people. <laughs> no, f- fantastic. And so, and so, so how is it funded? So do people, do organizations sort of contribute sponsorship and that, that type of thing? Uh, yeah. So there's no cost uh, to be part of WIRE. That was one of the things that we we wanted to ensure was that there wasn't any kind of barrier to entry. So if you were junior coming up in your career, chances are your, you know, the, the company you work for is not going to pay for you to have a membership to attend our events. And so we wanted to ensure that we didn't have a structure that would be prohibitive to, to women participating. So all of our, all of our programming and services are funded by corporate donors. And we've been really you know fortunate to have 
big donors like Kantar and Facebook and LinkedIn who have been donors for years and years and years. We're incredibly thankful for their support. Uh, and yeah, we do corporate kind of corporate sponsorships that fund our, our overarching programming and then event sponsorships for individual events. Oh, fantastic. And and if people are interested in getting involved, whether sort of women who want to sign up to it or corporate sponsors, they, they just go on the website, do they? Or is there someone um, specifically they should get in, in touch with? Um, well, they can reach out to me um, at Kristen at womenandresearch.org if they're interested in sponsorship. Uh, or if you just want to attend a wire event or, or sign up, which again is free, you can just go to womenandresearch.org. Following up on this a little bit, I think there may be kind of a few different issues there. There's actually kind of the, the percentages and there's representation, but then there's also encouraging, especially younger women in the industry, to sort of find their voice. How are you, how should we be sort of thinking about that now? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that we've really tried to encourage people to think about is that when you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you really have to think about the equity part, not just diversity and inclusion. And that means you're not just giving someone a seat at the table, but you are allowing them to contribute in some meaningful way. And sometimes that means silencing other voices in the room so that those people have an opportunity to contribute. Uh, and and I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily gender specific either. I think any sort of marginalized group, you know, struggles to speak up in some of these group settings or struggles to participate or doesn't know if their voice is appreciated or welcomed. And so it's up to uh, the leaders in the, you know, the highest ranks of the company to ensure that that everyone does have a, a voice. And again, that's different than just get, giving someone a seat at the table. Um, you know, that said, every five years, we measure how uh, how we're doing as an industry in terms of gender equality. We've been really lucky to partner with Material on this for 15 years now. So every five years, Material runs a, a, a survey for us and does the analysis. And we're actually going to be presenting the results of of this year's survey, because it's our 15th anniversary this year, uh, we're going to be presenting that at SMR Congress in just a few weeks. Could we briefly sort of talk through your, your sort of journey and what you've learned? So, for instance, moving from what was Lieberman back in the day and Nielsen back in the day, probably AC Nielsen actually back in the day, to, to found OTX, <laughs> who I should say, I'll, I'll try to keep quiet because they were one of my sort of deadly rivals <laughs> kind of oh. back in the day. But what, what, what happened there and what, what were you looking to achieve and how did you do it? Yeah, I, I think the one thing that has always defined my career is that I, I really gravitate toward doing things that I, I find really exciting. And so even if I can't, if I can't get involved with something like that at the company that I'm I'm in, or if nobody's doing it, that generally doesn't stop me from from trying to take that next step. And so, you know, for instance. Lieberman, which is is now material. I I had an incredible start to my career though. I'm immensely grateful to Dave Sackman and the folks that I I worked with at, at Lieberman because it was sort of like going to market research boot camp. And uh, I think I was there about three years, and I I was reading sort of about the internet research and online research and how folks were starting to dabble in it. I think Greenfield Online had launched at that time, and I. I was just super, super interested in it. And I went into Dave's office and I said, hey, um, which was kind of ballsy of me because I think maybe I was a director at that point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I went in there and I said, yeah, I'm I'm really interested in, in online research. I think it's 
the wave of the future and I want to be part of it. And if you're going to, you know, if there's going to be a group that's doing it, I want in. And he said, Kristen, we're not going online. <laughs> Say his last words. <laughs> I know. Dave and I laugh about this now. Uh, and, and so I, I left and I went to, to AC Nielsen. So to your point, yes, it was AC Nielsen at the time. And, um, they had a office in, in Hollywood and I, I joined a, a group that was working to create the, one of the first online research platforms, uh, for, um, for testing and particularly for the entertainment industry, which is obviously, a, you know, AC Nielsen Hollywood, we were focused on, on entertainment research, uh, yeah, it was probably about two and a half, three years when I, mm. I really just had to come to terms with the fact that AC, AC Nielsen or Nielsen, although they're a great company, it is not a great environment to launch an internet startup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially at that time, I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. they just couldn't, uh, they weren't nimble enough. They didn't really understand how quick you had to move. And they didn't really want to put the financial resources behind it. And so anytime there was an issue with the platform development, if we needed more resources, it came with a caveat like, yes, we'll give you more resources, but only if you bring in more revenue. Well, as you know, you're not going to get more revenue from entertainment clients unless you can deliver. Mm, <laughs> and that yeah, means yeah. Free weekends generally. And and so, so yeah, there was a, um, you know, another woman working there in, in sales. So I was in an operations and, and tech role, but uh, Shelly Zalas was working in sales and she and I decided to leave and and start OTX, which is kind of the genesis of how OTX got started. Yeah, I, I guess there are those different challenges, aren't they? So also depending, without commenting specifically on Nielsen, but depending on whether you're a publicly quoted company or not, are you beholden to quarterly reports, you know, analyst expectations, you know, to what extent can you invest in the future um, as, opposed very, to, as opposed to the now? Absolutely. It's very challenging. It's interesting because Eileen Campbell, who, who you may know, who's the former CEO of Millward Brown, she and I had a conversation about that one time and she had said, yeah, it's very, very difficult for her to balance getting the work done with innovating because there wasn't a whole lot of tolerance for her missing her numbers. And as you know, anytime you're experimenting with something, A, you're pumping money into it. So you're investing in, in the development of that product, but B, it's, there's probably going to be a period of time that it's there's a lot of cost accrual without a lot of revenue. <laughs> you know, and if you don't have the kind of the, the that you know that that stomach for it it's just not going to happen Kristen but moving on a little bit so then you um you sold OTX I think to, to Ipsos and- well initially we sold it to uh Zelnick Media Group and Pilot Group so Pilot Group was Bob Pittman um, so he was one of the co-founders of AOL so they bought it first and then it was sold to Ipsos again it was sold again next to Ipsos and that was in 2007 so we sold in 2003 for a second time than in 2007. But you stayed on to run the business when you were, when it was sold in 2003, or did you leave at that juncture? No, I stayed on for about a year and a half. I was supposed to be there for uh, three years. Uh, and I actually asked to exit my contract early because I just was not in agreement. I wasn't aligned with this, the strategy. Um, obviously, when you're owned by a private equity firm, their desire is to sell it again in five years. And so there was no more investment and technology. There was an immense amount of scrutiny on the business. I think when you get to a a space where uh, when you're in misalignment with the business and it's, it's a little like watching your baby get clubbed to death every day. I just couldn't, 
I just didn't want to stay anymore. Mm. Um, and as it turns out, when you're grouchy and difficult to work with, they don't mind when you leave so much. So, <laughs> so I was able to, I was able to exit and move on to move on to new things. I know people say a lot, happiness is everything, but if you're not enjoying it and you're not engaged with it, sort of, again, be, be brave and make, make the break, move on. Absolutely. I mean, there's no, there's no job, there's no role where you're going to be happy hundred percent of the time. But I think if you're not happy, at least 80% of the time, you're probably not doing the right thing. Yeah. So, so what happened next? Yeah. So I, uh, I left and a couple months later, I started a data visualization platform uh, with an engineering team in, in Hollywood. And I was, I was running that for maybe we were all together, maybe a year and I was approached by Decipher. So there were uh, two guys running Decipher at the time, Jamin Brazil and Jamie Plunkett. Uh, and I, I happened to run into Jamin in the south of France in Cannes. As everybody <laughs> and, does. As everybody as does. The only, does. Place, only place to meet people. I know. It sounds a lot more glamorous than it was. It was at an SMR conference, so it was still a research conference. But somehow Jamin and I ended up sitting right next to each other. And we just really hit it off, which was funny because, you know, Decipher and OTX were kind of fierce competitors in the space for a lot of work. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was I was really interested in going into the software licensing space because I definitely thought there was a, a gap there. And at the time, when I initially spoke with Jamin and Jamie, they were not interested in licensing Decipher software. We kept in touch and about, yeah, about a year into me uh, building out this data visualization platform, they reached out to me and said, okay, we've had a change of heart. We're, you know, we're interested in going into the software space. Do you want to, do you want to join us? And so they ended up buying my company out like in less than a year of starting it. And I came on as a partner uh, and the president of, of Decipher really with the, the challenge of taking that company into the software licensing space, which again, I had never licensed software, nor did I know anything about selling software. So it was, it was another exciting challenge for me. Why did you go in down that particular direction? I think at that point, having already exited one company and seeing the kinds of returns that you can get from selling and then looking at where those higher multiples were coming from, it was clear that if I really wanted to maximize my next exit, it needed to have a software component to it. I felt like there was a real, real clear um, market opportunity. And also, I, it was something that I was interested in that I hadn't done before. And that, I think, is the um, one of the central themes of my entire career. <laughs> Every move that I make, it is so that I can gain experience doing something I'm interested in and something I'd like to learn, but maybe haven't haven't done before. Yeah, and I, I love that. So you're, you're taking some of your previous experience, but there's always a twist on it. It's never just sort of going back and trying to do the same old kind of playbook again. There's always a twist. I mean, it's funny because I think when you look at my career, it to someone that's kind of not familiar with the space or doesn't understand the linkage between firms, it may look like I've had a lot of crazy kind of twists and turns, but it all it all actually flows together. And so going back to the Decipher experience a little bit, and this is a business that, sorry, this is an issue that some of the businesses I work with are kind of wrestling with, uh, the balance between kind of enterprise-based sales and sort of small and medium type business sales. What was Decipher sort of focusing kind of primarily? Was it research agencies or did you start to sort of look at um, you know, financial institutions, consultancies, that, that type of area? 
initially, it was almost solely research agencies, although we did have some larger end clients like Adobe and PayPal that that worked with us that had had teams that were wanted to be more DIY internally. I think we when we were doing enterprise sales, we were really focused on the large research firms. But I think one of the one of the things that we and certainly I underestimated when we went went to market with our software platform, how hard it is to unseat a platform that's already entrenched in a in a company. It, it, you know, if you've worked at all with research technology, you know, once it's embedded in a company, it's like it's like, you know, an octopus with tentacles. Like it just goes out and it like kind of, you know, sticks to everything. Mm. And and to unseat one of those platforms, it's not that it, it's not enough to have a a better or a a cheaper or uh, a more robust solution. That's not good enough because you're, you're working against behavioral change and the behavioral change component is that this is the hardest part of it. You're asking for someone to learn a new platform and not just someone, but like entire teams to, to learn new platforms. It's almost feels like in terms of those enterprise kind of sales, you sort of had to keep on pushing for a long period of time, find out the soft spots and sort of identify when you were just banging your head against a wall. Realistically, sure. you you weren't going to get in there. Absolutely. I, I think a, a few things people have to keep in mind when they're selling to enterprise accounts, which is one, it's an incredibly long sales cycle. I mean, I had accounts that I was trying to land for over two years. Some of mm-hmm. them that I didn't land, end up landing until after I'd already exited to sector. Just takes a really long time. And the second was ensure that you're developing some kind of sales program or sales strategy that addresses the behavioral component of it and understands the pain points that are keeping customers from switching. So for instance, we launched a, a program that was actually so controversial that Quarks and a few other industry like advertisers wouldn't even run advertising around it. But it was like we called it at the time the platform was called Beacon. And so we had had dubbed it like the beacon transition plan. And basically it said, if you're transitioning off another platform, like, con- you know, confirm it or Qualtrics or um, dimensions that if you signed a contract with us, we would give you up to a year free. You could just use the platform mm-hmm. for free while you were transitioning off from your previous platform. And so okay. what it allowed you to do was like lock in that contract early, they weren't really doing any kind of volume of work on it. But we knew that when their contract with the existing provider ended, we were going to be the one in there and that we'd given them plenty of time to transition over. Um, and that we also had this great sales operations organization, which at the time was headed up by by Aaron Taylor. Uh, and we just had, you know, we were just really exceptional at onboarding people and giving them time to transition and understanding how to address those pain points. When you were giving the year free upfront, that was an exchange for a three-year contract. Or That's whatever, perfect. or some, something along those lines. So you yeah. were almost sort of tra- trading off to the point we were talking about earlier, trading off some short-term profitability for long-term projectability in the business and and kind of security. And it also um, sounds like as a platform, you also invested heavily in client service as well. Absolutely, yeah. The other thing that we did is we would always identify what we would call a super or a power user within that organization who we would spend an incredible amount of time training to and would really evangelize using the platform internally. And that helped a lot too, because we had one point person versus like trying to deal with like 15 different people that had different issues. Like that person was the point person for their whole organization. So if somebody had an issue, they went to that person first. And then if that person couldn't solve it, then they came to to us at Decipher. But that also you know, created a a, a a culture where there was an, an internal evangelist making sure the platform was being used. 
and uh, also helped us kind of have to uh, keep down our, our software support costs. Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. I could probably pick your brain on this for hours, but I should move. I should move on. <laughs> so, m- moving on to Scalehouse, you're you're now involved in a ton of different interesting companies as a board member and as advisor, as a consultant in in some cases. Could you briefly describe the type of work you're, you're doing now? Yeah. So, uh, it it's interesting. I think after after I exited uh, Decipher when we were sold to to Focus Vision. Uh, I, I had a period of time where I really had to figure out what it was that I wanted to do next. And I was, I was in the enviable position of really not having to work anymore, but then also being too young to retire. And so, uh, uh, I spent a lot of time sort of thinking about what it was that I really loved doing. Uh, and what I realized is that it wasn't really the starting of companies that I loved so much. But it was the scaling that I I loved. Mm. It was the problems that come with with growth and and how how you get around all these various roadblocks that inevitably pop pop up in your way, and and so that was sort of the the ethos behind Scalehouse, what which was you know hey here's you know your opportunity to learn from somebody who's been in the trenches now th- three times and has screwed up more things than you could ever possibly <laughs> imagine and. You can all benefit from the many mistakes that I made and give yourself a much faster path to, to growth and profitability and eventually an exit. And so we tend, we do some work with early stage companies, although I would say most of the companies that we work with are mid stage. And so, yeah, what, yeah. what does mid, sorry, what does mid stage uh, uh, mid stage would be like you've been in business for five years. You probably, you might be sub, sub 10 million in, in revenue, but maybe your growth is stalled out or, uh, you want to prepare for an exit in the not too distant future, but you're not sure what you need to do in order to maximize your your valuation. Uh, so we, yeah, so we do a, a lot of growth strategy and scaling. Uh, we do, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of M and A optimization work. Uh, I have a business partner now uh, at Scalehouse, Mike Pisani, uh, and uh, one of the the things that I did a couple years ago in keeping with my theme of always learning something new with every <laughs> every company is I uh, I went and got my investment banking license um, about three years ago. I would say one out of 10 do not recommend those tests. <laughs> Very <laughs> grueling. <laughs> Very grueling, particularly for somebody that, that did not uh, t- go to business school uh, nor have any background in finance. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so Mike and I also work together on on M and A in in the industry. We only work in the marketing tech and services vertical, so okay. we're we're super focused and, and specialized on that. And then occasionally we work on turnarounds, uh, which, as you can imagine, are some of the more challenging engagements that we take on. Lots of uh, lots of things I'm so interested to to know about here. But Kristen, going back to the investment banking qualification, apart from the um, the detail of it, and you know necessarily the financial models and that type of thing. But what, did it did it change your perspective in any way, or, or did you kind of know it all already? It helps me advise and prepare companies for an, an eventual M and A event in a much different way than I probably would have advised on before, mm-hmm. having only the founder's perspective. So now having the buyer's perspective as well, I think it has been has been really powerful and very differentiating for us as a as a firm. I see. And what's um, what are some of the key things from a buyer's perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it depends on on the buyer. I mean, strategic buyers oftentimes are looking for different things than a financial buyer, like a private equity firm might might look for. But uh, I think 
I think for one, for one, I don't think that most founders realize the amount of documentation that they're going to need for their data room in advance. And it's always better to start preparing that sooner rather than later, because if you get hit with it late on, like we did at OTX, put this information together, it's very, very challenging. I think, and this is one of the things that Mike and I do when we're doing M&A optimization, is that we are sitting down with the founder and walking them through the different variables that are going to ultimately impact their valuation which can be everything from, you know, whether they have any proprietary assets, whether that's technology or a panel or something or a proprietary method they, they've developed to what their customer concentration is, mm. uh, um, how much recurring revenue. And I think a lot of times people hear the word recurring revenue and they think of software. That's not necessarily the case. There's plenty of services-based firms that can have recurring revenue. And it's not always in the form of contracts. It's just being able to show consistency year over year over year, uh, um, you know, what your what your revenue per employee is. Uh, there's lots of different factors that are going to go into the valuation. Uh, and so I think that the smarter we can make folks about that before they go into the process, you know, then we can have a real meaningful impact, like a life-changing impact uh, for a lot of the founders on what their company is ultimately worth. Yeah, I'm sure you're more than worth your your very reasonable fee, whatever <laughs> whatever that happens to be. Uh, but I, th- I think it's <laughs> I um I can very much sort of see that, and being prepared is kind of half, half the battle. I, I also wanted to um, just go back to a point that you'd made that related to something else in the conversation about when things aren't going so well. So, for instance, turnarounds. How how do you tend to look at turnarounds? Well, it's interesting because. The the number like if you look at the stats for companies that are failing the num the number one reason that companies fail is product market fit number one and what's interesting about the marketing research marketing tech marketing services space is that market research firms are generally the worst at both research and marketing for their own firm <laughs> it's fascinating to me I mean if you ask a market research firm to spend any money on research they will look at you like you're insane Henry. They don't want to spend a dime on it. They don't recognize the value of it. It's it's a it's a bizarre mindset, uh, and and it's not a mindset that I've ever incorporated. I mean, we did a ton of research and user experience research too at Decipher because we really want to know what people thought of the the brand, about the company, about the platform, uh, and we used a, a third party to, to conduct that research for us to make sure it was unbiased. So. Yeah, so that's you know the number one reason generally is product market fit or the position of the company, and then the second, usually again, is behavioral change, behaviors that are going on in in the company that are keeping it from growing or causing issues that are leading to a downturn, and very often it's behaviors at the C-suite level. Um, so it could be you know too much people are trying to control too much or they're working too much in the business versus on the business. Uh, or they've got a lot of employee churn uh, and behavioral change. Again, that's the hardest to to fix. So, Chris, what's the marketplace like now? I mean, here we are and whatever it is, kind of getting towards kind of Q4 2020. There's quite a lot of sort of economic doom and gloom around as a whole. Uh, well, on the M and A side of things, uh, it's still an incredibly hot market in in this sector. Valuations are still at all time highs. We're seeing crazy valuations still for for a lot of the companies in in this space, and that's both you know, tech enabled companies and full service research companies. And it's all about the positioning. You know, if you look at uh, the SMR GMR, that's a great place to look because it kind of shows which verticals within research are growing 
at the fastest pace. You know, certainly one is is panel companies. Those have high valuations. The second, mm-hmm. consulting firms. So the the more a market research agency can position themselves like a consulting firm, so like a McKinsey or a BCG or or a Bain, that you know, that that impacts their valuation pretty significantly. Um, or of course, any any kind of technology platform or proprietary assets that that a company has, that that's going to drive evaluations for sure. Go with this question around consulting, though, as you said, if you're positioned as a consulting firm, because a lot of research agencies claim they are consultants and that's really what they deliver. But from an acquirer's kind of perspective, what signifies that you're really a truly a consulting-driven kind of research firm? Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, two things. I think it is that you're selling upstream, so you're selling into the C-suite. You're not selling to a market research director, gotcha. or the insights team, or business intelligence team. But you're selling into the CMO or the CFO or the CEO. Like you're you're up in the C-suite, so that's where you're strategically selling, and you're looking more holistically at the business than on a project by project basis as many researchers tend tend to do. Uh, the second is um, I, I think you're you're providing a range of services that is more consultative than just research. So yeah, you might be delivering data, but as part of that package, you're also advising on either design or on activation. So you're not just delivering the data and saying, oh yeah, if you, you know, if you make some changes inside your your store, you'll be, you know, you'll see a 5% increase in growth. They're actually saying, like, hey, here are the 10 things that you need to change in your store immediately mm-hmm. in order to reach this percentage of, of growth. So it's more, it's, you know, there's a lot more direction and a lot more ownership for like what are the actual strategies and tactics that need to be implemented and how do they implement those. Yeah, I mean, th- thank you. That's incredibly clear and a great way to categorize the two areas. Yeah, and I think I think researchers suffer from a little bit of insecurity around advising on activation for some reason, and I I don't know why because we have the the data and we know which questions to ask. Uh, I think I think too the the one thing that consulting firms do a lot of that. We, we struggle with in this sector is working with other types of data besides survey data, taking in point of sale data, taking in Salesforce data, telling a, a, a bigger story, looking at a bigger picture than just on this like one, you know, one, one survey data set. Uh, and I don't think that we've mastered that at all yet as an industry. Yeah, yeah, it's such a consistent theme as I'm doing these interviews, both from an agency side, an advisory side, saying researchers be more confident in your viewpoint, but look holistically. But if it's all right, I thought we might just sort of jump onto a quick fire round of just a few fast questions, and you can give some some top of mind answers if if that's okay. Sure. So we've talked um, quite a lot about mistakes. Have you ever made any what I describe as good mistakes, by by which I mean a mistake that you're glad you made it because that that was a great learning opportunity? Yes. I I think earlier on in my career, I was really afraid to admit that I didn't know how to do something. And so rather than just admit that I didn't know how to do it and ask for help, I would I would try to figure it out on my own. And I'm, you know, I'm really good at self-learning, but one of the more horrendous and embarrassing mistakes I made was early on when OT, when we were starting OTX within iFilm, uh, the CEO of the CEO of iFilm came to me and was like, oh yeah, we need to get your um 
your P&L projections for the next quarter, and you're going to need to present those at a management team meeting. Well, I didn't really know anything about business finance, Henry, because mm. I have been in this industry as a researcher and I never went to business school. And so I literally went home that night, rather than just asking someone, what am I supposed to be delivering? Uh, I I went out and I bought business finance for dummies and I read it all the entire book that night. And like I pulled an all nighter. And then I stayed up and I made this magnificent um, chart that showed, of course, profitability, you know, skyrocketing. Yes. Yeah going so low, you know, it was like a graph and um, you'll be shocked to hear this when, um, when I presented this in the management meeting, you know, everybody was dazzled and, and everyone clapped for me, which is a, a total lie. They did not. And <laughs> I was almost laughed out of the room. And uh, there was a really lovely CFO at iFilm at the time, uh, Brent Wellman, who he very graciously sat down and tutored me on business finance and was a great mentor to me. And and then even when I went on after OTX to launch other companies, he's always been a sounding board for me for anything financial that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so it was a humbling experience, but also one where I realized like I don't need to know everything as a founder. I think there's this weird misconception that to start a company, you need to, to know how to do every role in the company and how to make every piece fit together. And that's absolutely not the case. Like play to your strengths and hire people that are smarter than you at, at things that you don't understand or don't have the time to learn. Yeah, again, fantastic advice, I think, and a great story, uh, you know, a sort of a seminal mistake that kind of changed the way in which you did things. I try I try only to make mistakes, Henry, that really provide the maximum amount of humiliation because then I never <laughs> make that same mistake. Yeah, go yeah, go big or go home. <laughs> really make it of yourself. That's my, that's my advice. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay, so we talked about um that sort of perspective from you know whatever it is, like 15 years ago or so. But if you were able to jump into a time machine, what do you wish you'd known 12 months ago that you now know? Uh, one of the things that I did not realize, I think because I was traveling so heavily before lockdown, before the pandemic really came into play, I don't think that I realized how tired I was <laughs> until I was at home by myself for three months. I think maybe I was three months into lockdown where I was like, wow, I was really exhausted before. It took that it long to catch up to realize, yeah. That long to catch up. And I, it was the first time in probably 15 years that I felt well rested. And so I, I have gotten just a lot better about self care and about saying no to things, which mm. has been really hard for me. I, I generally say yes to everything because I'm terrified of missing out on something fun. Uh, and, but I was kind of doing it to my own detriment. And so, now I'm I'm just really good about pushing back and and saying it, you know, like it sounds awesome, but uh, you know, it's just not for me. I can't I can't make it work. And really trying to take care of myself a bit more than than what I was. Great advice, and you're looking very well on it, if I may say Thank so you. as well. <laughs> so, um, what's your favorite book or or recent book, and and why? Uh, I probably I would say I probably have two two favorite books from the last year that I've read, and I'm a I'm a really avid reader. Someone. Someone told me one time, like, don't, don't try to, don't tell anybody to read books because no one reads books anymore, but I do. <laughs> I'm like a really, really. I don't, know if the, yeah, I don't know if that's true. Lots of people actually yeah. do still seem to be reading them, these interviews yeah. that I'm doing. Yeah, I read a lot of books. Um, Probably, well, my top one would be Atomic Habits by James Clear. I don't know if you've read that book, but I think one of the, again, you know, when I'm thinking about behavioral change, which is the hardest, I think a lot of people 
find behavioral change really insurmountable. Uh, and a lot of that is because you try to take on too much change all at once rather than sort of taking that change and chopping it into like little snackable behaviors. And I think that's the, that's the power of James Clear's book, which is, you know, Hey, don't, you know, you don't have to start out saying like, Oh yeah, my goal this year is to do a hundred pushups. And like, I'm going to start out with 10. Most people are not going to just start out and do 10 pushups a day. And so his advice is like, maybe do one pushup. And then the second book that I really love uh, is a book by Tiffany Bova called Growth IQ. And uh, I think it's interesting because she's she's mapped out all of these different fundamentals for for company growth that that can be com- combined uh, to kind of fit whatever stage a, a company is is in. Because I think lots of times people think, oh well, it's it's just one thing. Like I, there's just one thing that I'm missing that I need to do. But that's that's almost never the case with a with a company. There, it's always a combination of behaviors or tactics or strategies that you need to implement in order to in order to achieve growth. And I, I like the way that she's, she's framed the book and it's, it's a package. <laughs> I mean, it sounds fantastic. I'll, I'll definitely read it. And I'll, I'll also actually put up the recommendations on the website as well for anybody who wants yeah. to refer to them. Um, so Kristen, a final question on a more personal level, what do you hope you'll be doing in five years time? Oh, well, Henry, I, I keep telling everyone I'm going to be retired in five years, but the truth of the matter is I really love to, to work and uh, I'm like the cat with nine lives and I feel like I'm only on my third life right now. So I think there's another reinvention probably in the works in the not too distant future. And I'd say stay tuned. Very, very intriguing. Can't wait to see what the next six lives are. Kristen, thank you so much. It's really been a, a, a pleasure talking to you and so insightful. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. I had so much fun doing that interview with Kristen. She's just a font of knowledge and enthusiasm and a perspective that's really thoughtful. I'd also urge you to continue to support her work encouraging and promoting women in research. Again, the website is womeninresearch.org. Also, Juice Go Live later this week, I'm talking to Gareth Schweitzer, the founder of Kelton, who just very recently stepped down as vice chair of material. And I learned so much talking to him. We do a really deep dive into his advice on how to shape and mold insight and data points into really impactful storytelling. You can make sure you don't miss that by following on Apple or Spotify. And if you do like the podcast, please continue to follow, rate and write reviews or to send me suggestions at futureviewpod at gmail.com. Last but by no means least, thanks again to Horizon for sponsoring. They're introducing behavioral data in product and pricing research. Check them out at gethorizon.net. That's gethorizon.net. See you very soon, I hope.